0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. We start off with Percy Crawford, the founder of WDAC Radio Company, preaching on the tragedy of almost becoming a Christian.
1: The other day a lady looked in on television. When she saw the program and heard the gospel message, she was mad. You know the test of a good meeting is, did anybody get mad or did anybody get converted? You just had a little get-together. That's all you had. She was mad. Her sister-in-law told me about it, a friend of mine, why this woman had so much money she couldn't spend the interest on it. She was wealthy. She was rich. She was boiling. I said, okay, good for her. Maybe God will save her. About three weeks, she took sick and was rushed to a hospital. And a uh, right, well, funny thing, right within two miles from our home, or less, and I heard about it, and I said that we, uh, we were home that night. The boys were all there, and Ruth and I said, say, I'd like to go call on that woman in the hospital. She took me up on it, went to the telephone, and called up the hospital. No, he can't see her. She's very low, but we'll call you back if the minister can come. Well, I knew I wouldn't get a call. So about seven o'clock, I said to the boys, say, look, I'm going up to the hospital. Anybody want to come with me? Dick, 13-year-old said, I'll go with you, Dad. We rushed out, hopped in the car, dashed up there. I found out a room, went around, and there was the nurse standing at the door. I said, I have come as a minister to call on Mrs. So-and-so. I said, I'm a minister. I always got to start there. People don't think I'm a minister.
0: <laughs>
1: I had to start an argue. Before I began, I had to convince her I was a minister. I'm sorry you can't go in. Well, I said, I've come to call on her. She needs me, and I've come to pay a call, and I'm a minister, and she, I should have the right to get in. You can't get in. But I said, I beg your pardon, I can't. But she said, you can't. So we can't and can there for a while <laughs> and fought it out. And finally, she said, all right, you can go in, but don't talk to her. <laughs> well, I looked at her, and I said, well, I'll use my discretion about that. I don't know whether she knew what I meant by that or whether I did.
0: <laughs>
1: so I went in and there she was under the oxygen tent and she was gasping for breath. Did you ever see a woman die? Ever see a man die? I've seen lots of them die. I've seen saints die. Boy, that's the test. I introduced myself in case she didn't know me and I talked to her. What do you think I talked to her about the About baseball? What do you think I talked to her about You know what I talked to her about. And I said, I've come to help you. And I said, 1900 years ago, Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life, broken and bruised and battered for you. And I bring to you a friend that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll fear no evil for he'll be with you. He can take your sin and wash it all away. Take your rebellion against him and wash it all away. He can save you from the judgment and from hell. Write your name even now in the Lamb's Book of Life. Well, that's about as far as I go. So I said, may I have a word of prayer? So I bowed my head. I could feel four eyes looking at me. I didn't care. I've had worse than that. I prayed anyhow. God save this woman, even in this condition. Convict her of her sin. Help her to trust the Son of God and be saved. Lifted up my head. May the Lord bless you and watch over you. Goodbye. As I raised up my head and looked at her, her eyes were flashing. Bitter, hatred, fearful, scared of the judgment, scared of hell. The doctor said three hours later when they came into that woman's room, they said they have never in the history of the hospital seen anyone die like that woman. Fearful, scared, eyes flashing, fighting death. She died. And she died. Almost a Christian. She died. What a tragedy. Knowing better, knowing that Jesus died just like you know it tonight. What are you going to do? Come on. You're going out that door in just a few minutes. You're going to walk out. You're going to say, No, I don't want him as my Savior. Are you going to say, Yes? Have you got the backbone, even though that person next to you thinks you are a Christian, to say, God helping me? Tonight, as we approach Mother's Day, I'm going to answer my mother's prayers and say, God helping me. Even though I may have been back up there and I'm not quite sure about it, I'm going to make sure tonight, the 10th of May, 1952, God will bless you. You'll go out of here and say, thank God I settled it. Will you do that now? Will you? I hope you will. May we bow our heads in a word of prayer. As our eyes are closed, and our heads are bowed, nobody looking, don't whisper, please. I'm going to ask the boys to sing. Don't look at them. Christians pray. And as they sing, you ask God. Ask God to show you your sin. Give you courage and backbone to settle. Just think now. Be sincere and in earnest. heads are all bowed Her eyes are all closed my you've been a good audience thank you you've been sitting here tonight and you've been thinking about yourself you've been thinking about your sin your mind's been going back over the years gone by you've been thinking about mother tell mother I'll be there yeah I know Here it is again, May the 10th, 1952, and still you're not saved. What do you want God to do? Put you on your deathbed? Really beat you around? Or do you want to come willingly and gladly and say, Oh God, I'm a sinner. I want Jesus tonight. Even though I'll be scoffed at, and even though I'll lose most of my friends, I want to know my sins are gone and I miss the judgment in hell. You do that tonight, right now? You say, Mr. Crawford, but I, I believe the Bible. Good for you. And you say, I know I'm a sinner. Well, you should know that better than anybody. You say, I believe Jesus died on the cross. So does the devil. That doesn't save him. You've got to accept him. You've got to receive him. You've got to clinch him. You've got to make him your very own. that
0: now? Percy Crawford is now being followed by Harold Ockengay. He served as pastor of Park Street Church in Boston from 1937 to 1969. In 1985, at Dr. Achengay's funeral service, his old friend Billy Graham said, nobody outside my family influenced me more than he did. I never made a major decision without first calling and asking his advice and counsel. I thank God for His friendship and life. Dr. Akengay's message is, put on the whole armor of God.
2: What a privilege to have the opportunity of being back with you at Park Street Church again. It's my responsibility to preach in many places, but I certainly would rather preach here than anywhere else. The life of our family has been more closely associated with Park Street Church and, of course, with any other congregation, and there will be no other church which is our home such as this church is. So it's a delight to be here today. Now, in a post-Easter period, I normally would be examining some of the Christian calendar in the way of a subject. In fact, I thought when Dr. Toms first invited me to preach that I would preach to you on the subject of the resurrection gift, namely the Holy Spirit, and gave a considerable thought to that. But uh, of late, in reading the things which are taking place in the current events of our day, I have been um, really depressed. I don't know how you feel about it, And experienced considerable anguish of soul, of deep feeling, of indignation, and of frustration, and even some shame for the things which are taking place now in the world. And my mind, of course, because of the historical events that are going to take place out at Lexington and Concord, Turned in that direction and also the direction of our Bicentennial. And since you're going to have a celebration of these events within two weeks' time, I thought that uh, I would depart from a normal exposition and speak on the subject of American stamina, 1775 and 1975. Now, I'd like to take as a text those words of the scripture which were read for you a while ago, in which Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in an evil day, and having done all, to stand. Therefore, stand. Now here we get an exhortation, of course, to Christians, for he was addressing the brethren of the Ephesian church, to this kind of moral, spiritual stamina, which ought to be found in the lives of individuals. Well, they stood, those embattled farmers there on the Lexington Common and at the Concord Bridge. They, some of them, laid down their lives then and they initiated, of course, a train of events that was heard around the world. We think of those events in these days I think of the stamina of those people of which we ought to be very, very proud. Oh, their resistance of the Navigation Acts, their compulsion of the British Parliament to repeal the Stamped Act, their reaction to the Townsend Acts, especially in the throwing of the tea in the Boston Harbor, worth about $250,000 and stirring indignation in Britain and then to the occupation of Boston and the Boston Massacre, and then the calling of the Continental Congress on September 5, 1774, and then finally the shot that was started at Lexington and continued at Concord and as Ralph Waldo Emerson said was heard around the world. Here we see a series of events which launched, of course, the Declaration of Independence, the Revolution, the writing of our Constitution, and the existence of a very great nation. Now, if we were going to compare that to the nation that emerged after the Second World War, 1945 and 46 there would be a tremendous difference. We emerged from that war as the world's greatest, strongest, richest, most affluent, most influential nation. We emerged with power that was unequaled. We had the atomic bomb. We had the largest armies and armament and reserves. We had the largest gold reserve in the world. We had, as it were, security second to none. Now, that standard of living and that position and that power was the result of many, many years, decades, and almost two centuries of industrious labor, of the exploitation of our resources, and of the application of ideology unto our nation. And I think that ideology was that of representative democracy, of free enterprise, and of the Protestant Puritan ethic that released the ingenuity on the part of people that had come from lands where they knew none of these things in experience and developed the magnificent and remarkable nation which we had. At that time, we took a stance of great magnanimity first. We seemed to forgive our enemies who had cost us uh, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives and billions of dollars, both Japan and Germany. We became very generous. We launched the Marshall Plan with billions of dollars to rebuild the German industry, which had been destroyed. We launched what was called the Point Four Program to help the various uh, nations of the world rebuild their economies and especially the underdeveloped nations. We gave technical assistance. And then we also gave something like $160 billion in what's called foreign aid. There was great magnanimity. And there was a sense of stability with the American dollar, the means of exchange throughout the world and very stable, and with the resources that this nation had, we brought stability uh, to a great portion of the world. And what has happened now? Just two centuries after the Battle of Lexington and Concord and uh, 30 years after the end of World War II, with all the expenditures of our money and life and interest and energy, what has happened? Well, as I take inventory of the situation and look at the communist rise in the world today, I am disturbed and almost frightened. I know that people say that you shouldn't see a communist behind every tree and every rock and anybody who speaks on the subject is uh, scoffed at and scorned because he's supposed to be a little bit too far to the right. But nevertheless, communism controls a billion people in the world today, and communism is moving at a very, very rapid rate in control of other things. When I think of what we've done as a nation since 1973 in the Paris Peace Pact in withdrawing our support, our financial support and otherwise from Cambodia, so that the whole 600-mile border of Vietnam was opened to the invasion from the North, uh, the North Vietnamese troops. When I think of what we've done as far as Vietnam, South Vietnam is concerned in withdrawing the support that was necessary there and requested by the government of the United States, by the President of the United States for that purpose, when I think of the way in which we were not Responding affirmatively to actions taken by the North, I must admit that I'm chagrined and I'm ashamed of what's taken place. And when I see this great emotional spurge today for the orphans of South China, or rather of South Vietnam, I wonder if it isn't a compensation for a shame that people have within their own lives and their own hearts. Now, the people, the children need this. Help and so on, and we don't speak against that. But I think there's something here that's speaking about the fact that we ourselves are rationalizing some of our own conduct. Until today, communism is moving in in a way in Southeast Asia that there can be no way without, I think, military intervention. That there shall be a saving of Southeast Asia. Now another quarter of a billion people will move in that direction as goes South Vietnam will go Cambodia as gone as Laos is gone will go Thailand and also Burma that whole area will move in that direction and then when we think that the, not only the flank of American defense in the South Pacific will be turned but also that uh, the flank of our our defense in the the Mediterranean is being turned by Portugal embracing a communist government, a communist viewpoint. The Azores, which is one of our major defense uh, establishments in the moving of armament and, and men and equipment over into Europe, especially to, to Israel and places such as that, will certainly go to the communists. And we just returned from South Korea there we traveled for some two weeks. We met government officials, we met missionaries, we met educational leaders, we visited the military leaders. We had a very exhaustive and also interesting trip. Among other things, I preached a good many times there, which was the object of my going. But we come back with those people worried, sick, that the United States is going to pull out its forces and its support from North Korea From South Korea. And if our presence is not there, you may be sure that those 800 million communist Chinese, those 200 million communist Russians, those 25 or 20 million communist North Vietnamese who are digging tunnels under the DMZ, who are trying to infiltrate constantly, who have assassinated the wife of the present president over there and so on, are going to heat up that section just as they have in South Vietnam. And that means that the Philippines, the Taiwan, the Japan, and ultimately India, which India now is surrounded in, by the communist powers, especially by the navy of, of uh, the Russian powers, taking the Indian Ocean as their own since England moved out and also have their bases down there in Aden and the south of Arabia, it'll mean simply that these nations will turn, they'll have to turn, their interest and their uh, political allegiance and so on, unto the east. And I would prophesy today that though we are not willing to stand now, the day will come when we'll have to spend not tens but hundreds of billions of dollars and we'll have to spend thousands and hundreds of thousands of lives in order to protect this nation and the West for this cause. Here we see something happening in the world, but it isn't only in the military. And I say, what's happened to the stamina of America that we can allow these things to happen in 30 years? Again, when we look at the moral conditions of the nation on the matter of integrity, now let me give you a contrast. When we were in India some years ago, a man by the name of Cornelius, who was director of the YMCA in New Delhi, said, made more this testimony. He said, you know, when I was in America, I was absolutely amazed. He said you could go anywhere, and boys and girls could leave their toys out overnight. Nothing would ever be stolen. People uh, didn't have any fear in the streets. He said it was wonderful there. He said, we couldn't have that here in India at all. Those things had disappeared. But, you know, we were on the streets of Tokyo and also of Yokohama and of Kyoto and other cities in in Japan. And we saw hundreds and hundreds of bicycles outside of their apartment buildings, none of them locked. Dr. Strom, one of the missionary directors over there, told me one of his missionaries who lost a pocketbook in uh, travels, and thought it was gone, of course, and found that the individual who found it turned it over to the police. The police made a detailed search, found the individual missionary, returned this pocketbook with all the money and with all the cards and everything else in it. I myself, down at the subway, got out of a hotel first, uh, out, out of a taxi first, and ran to get a subway, and I left my Leica camera in the taxi. Well, now, I didn't know the name of the taxi man, I didn't know the number of the cab, didn't know the kind of cab it was, I didn't pay attention to any of those things. And I went down in the subway, and I turned around in the subway, and here this taxi man had left his taxi way out in the street of Tokyo, had run all the way down in the subway to give me back my like a camera. Does that contrast with anything here in the breakup of integrity, in great leadership in America, in the... Breakup of integrity on the part of average people in America today? Is there any contrast there? That's a Confucian, a Confucian nation, that Japanese nation. Less than 1% are Christian there, and yet here, with all of our Christians and all of our emphasis, you know what would take place in integrity. We had, of course, the great Watergate scandal this last year. Take this matter of purity. I don't think that you'll see the kind of movies and literature and magazines and the stands of places of the world that you see here in America. Coming on at 747, there was a movie. Well, I said, I'll treat you to it. I said, all right. So we looked at the movie. It cost two dollars a person to see the movie on one of those planes. And we saw a movie there, the name of which I won't give you, but it showed adultery, immorality, and all other kinds of things that were wrong, and then a little redemptive thing in the end that the man who perpetrated all this did a great heroic act and he became the hero and everybody thought he was fine. But the things that were shown to us on that movie were very degrading morally. Need I speak about these other areas today where this is true? Do you look at the advertisements in the newspapers about these things day by day? and see what's taking on morally in America? Have you read that we had last year in America 772,000 legal abortions last year in America? Have you read the divorce rate till that divorce rate is moving right into the families of the churches and the Christians and the homes of our America today everywhere? Have you looked at the matter of indulgence? Have you read some of the statistics that, uh, that uh, Senator Mark Hatfield is giving concerning our eating habits against the hunger and the starvation in various areas of the world? Have you also looked at the statistics here in, America, in Massachusetts alone where more than half of our income, a billion and a quarter dollars, is going for welfare? Where is the stamina of American life today? Where is the discipline of American life today? Supposing it were your secretary that was stabbed over there in Cambridge the other day so many times for a pittance that she had in her pocketbook. Supposing it were your son, one of those two, that was stabbed 50 times and bludgeoned to death at. MIT. Supposing it was your daughter a year or so ago that was burned by those four young men who poured gasoline over and burned her to death down in the South. Supposing these things hit you and we've had all these murders and all these things in in, in Massachusetts right now. I ask you is there any meaning to this kind of thing? Well, let's take a little deeper view of this now in the light of the Scripture for a moment. Try to get a perspective. I should like to speak to you on this, first of all, that the Lord's providence in preparing the stamina for greatness in America, then the Lord's provision which he's given to us for that stamina, and then the Lord's permission of the triumph of evil in our day. Think a moment at the background of America. Now, this text of St. Paul written to the Ephesian Christian, says, Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Those events back in 1775 didn't just happen. They just didn't come as a, something that was an explosion of emotions on the part of the people. You can trace those things back into Europe. Remember that in Europe we had at the, about the beginning of the 16th century, the end of the 15th century, what we call the Renaissance. And out of the Renaissance, there came various movements. There was the Reformation, there was the Enlightenment, there was rationalism and so on. But in the Reformation, there was a setting at liberty, the people of Europe who had been bound down under governments and under the church and under a social system that had made them almost chattel. And then there was this wonderful release that came, came through the rediscovery of the scripture as the authoritative word of God of uh, the great teaching of justification by faith, that an individual man stands or falls before his God, of the private right of interpretation of the Scripture, these great truths that went through there. And Europe just seemed to flame under this thing. It broke into a tremendous burgeoning life, spiritual life. One need only read, of course, the life of, of uh, Luther, of Zwingli, of Knox, of Calvin, of these different individuals to know what happened, of course, in the European scene. But now there came a reaction to that, and that reaction was called the rea- called the reaction. And under Tilly and Wallenstein, at the beginning of the 17th century, there was a movement, a military movement, to quench this, to blot it out, and to reestablish the authoritarian uh, church and state and so on. And cities were burned, like Magdeburg was sacked and burned to the ground, and the people massacred and so on. It was terrible, terrible suffering throughout Europe for 30 years, until the time when Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden came and uh, organized some of the resistance and uh, fought them to a standstill. And then there came the Peace of Westphalia. And in the Peace of Westphalia in 1668, there was granted tolerance. You see, to the various states according to the religion of their princes and so on—not liberty, but tolerance. That was the beginning of it. Now, interestingly enough, the North American continent had been skirted by the Vikings, by the Norsemen. They'd been here before uh, ever Columbus came, but there was no settlement that was made. And Columbus came in 1492, and there were no settlements that were made to mount anything in the north here, until, of course, you came with the the French up in the Castine Bay and the the pilgrims here at uh, Plymouth and the the English people down also at, uh, at Jamestown. Now, for some reason, in the providence of God, this great continent was kept until there was prepared in Europe the ferment of ideas religiously and also philosophically, for you can trace this through John Locke and Berkeley and others in England and through Rousseau and the Encyclopedias in France. It was kept free, so until the ferment was there, where the world was moving toward liberty, toward a sense in which you not only had tolerance, but you would get religious liberty, you'd have the opportunity of worshiping God according to your own conscience. And we know that the Moravians and the Pietists and the uh, Quakers and the Pilgrims and the Huguenots and these people all came to America for the purpose of starting a new life with a degree of freedom and a degree of liberty. And there was that movement that developed. It developed, of course, politically, in some ways, religiously in other ways. It was expressed, as we find it in the Declaration of Independence. We expressed first of all, the Mayflower Compact in the charters of the various uh, uh, colonies, then of the Declaration of Independence, which spoke about, you know, we believe that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Well, each one of these things starting you know, in God, amen, and so on. We exist for the furtherance of the Christian religion and the glory of God. Uh, we, the people of Massachusetts, uh, recognizing the benign providence of the supreme legislator of the universe, and so on. This is the way that these things all began. And so there was this faith that there was a God, back of it all, and that law could be codified and that law could protect the individual person because he's made in the image of God and that these people and this government would be responsible to God according to that law in reference to dealing with these individuals. And we had what we call the freedom of the individual. We had the dignity or the, the infinite value of the individual expressed here in this nation. And to me, that was the genius, the ingenuity that released the spark of these people that came from Europe and other nations to make the the, the great creativity and the great development that took place in America at that time. Now we've come to the place where uh, someone will say to me, let me back up a minute, someone will say to me, oh, that's a civic religion. No, it isn't. You cannot identify America with the covenant people of God. You cannot say that America has the promises and everything that that, uh, Judea had or that uh, Judaism had. You cannot say that. We're, we're not in that position at all. But we must not undersell and undercut the great providence of God in giving us the privileges which we had in this nation. And in my opinion, this is what's happening everywhere at the present time. And when you have the liberal mind come along and in a form of existentialism or atheism or naturalism repudiate God... And then establish in the place of absolute moral law and codified law uh, the new morality in which everybody does what's right in his own eyes. He does his own thing because there is no such thing as the absolutes and so on. All's relative. And then when we look on a permissive society today in the, the repudiation of these things, I ask you, is there any connection with that in the moral debacle that's taking place in America and the international disgrace which we're facing at the present time? Well, I believe... That there's a God in the throne, and he's raised up America in its magnanimity, in its mission, in its, uh, its work throughout the world to do these things, many of which it has done, some of which, of course, have been done wrongly and so on. But nevertheless, in a great way, it has fulfilled a good bit of its destiny. Now, where do we get the stamina, then, that can come for the greatness that we've had? Well, let's remember Norman Cousins wrote a book, the late uh, editor of the uh, Review of Literature, Saturday Review of Literature, wrote a book called In God We Trust. And he analyzed the faith of the framers of our Constitution, the members of the Continental Congress and the the Constitutional Congress, Federal Constitutional Congress. And he points out in here that these were religious men. These were men that believed in God. Even Ben Franklin. And I get so tired of hearing Tom Skinner Uh, blame Ben Ben Franklin for fathering a lot of children in Europe when he was over there in France, which I doubt if he ever did, uh, just debunking our heroes. And men like uh, Gore Vidal in his book Aaron Burr uh, telling us that Washington was uh, incompetent and vain and pompous and unjust and making a uh, really a demagogue out of him and doing the same thing with Jefferson and so on. I get very tired of this kind of thing. Because if you read a man like Samuel Ellison Morris, uh, Elliot Morrison in The History of the American People, you'll find that he'll say that a man like Washington was a man of very great integrity. And he's, one of the, he's probably the greatest American authority in this realm. And when I see how that we're tar- trying today to debunk our heroes and to degrade them and speak against them in all of these areas, I turn back to that book by Norman Cousins in which he points out that these men believed in God. Even Tom Paine, who, of course, attacked the Bible, believed in God and was a deist. Benjamin Franklin believed in God and called the Congress to prayer. Thomas Jefferson was a great believer in God and had his scripture, which he revised for a smaller scripture, rather cut it down. But nevertheless, these men believed in God, and many of them were strong, evangelical, biblical, orthodox Protestants. Now, God says here, be strong in the Lord. Put on the whole armor of his might. We haven't got time to expound each one of these things, but he speaks about the girdle of truth that we're committed to the revealed truth of God that binds things together. To the breastplate of righteousness uh, that started in a soldier, you know, from his neck and went down to his thighs, both in the front and the back, and protected him from the enemy. What if if Agnew, if Nixon, if uh, Mitchell, if Ehrlichman, if Halderman, if these people had had the breastplate of righteousness on them, the imputed righteousness of Christ and the resulting righteousness of an individual life. And then he speaks about the feet shod with the gospel of peace. Peace with God and peace of God because of justification and thus with shoes able to take it out in ministry, in activity unto men of the day. He speaks, you see, of the helmet of righteousness that would protect the mind from all of the errors and aberrations. He speaks then of, this shield of the shield of faith and of the sword of the Spirit. As I say, time won't permit me to expound them to you. But Paul points out here that here is a, a, a source of stamina, of strength that comes to individuals who are committed to God through Jesus Christ and his word. I was reading Martin Marty the other day in a book called The, uh, The Evangelicals by David White or David Wells. And in his essay in that, he points out that the Evangelicals today are the heirs of the Evangelicals of the 19th century, which caused that century to be such a great century. He points out the fact that the liberals have broken tradition with them altogether. And it's the liberals who have turned around and produced and rejected, as it were, the basic fundamentals of a a Christian-Protestant government as such. You see, there's a connection between these two things, and we just cannot overlook that connection. Now, Paul says here, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. He says there's an invisible world in which you have Satan and his minions, and these are Influencing the nations of the world. Jesus said Satan is the prince of this world. Paul said he's the God of this world. Paul said he's the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Peter spoke in the same kind of language. Now these forces are invisible forces, which forces we see having effect upon the world at the present time. I wish we could see from the 10th chapter of of 1 Corinthians how that Paul says that you're not to drink of the table of demons. He speaks of the table of God and the table of demons. And he speaks about these forces that are spiritual forces that control the lives of men. If we look today at this communist movement in its philosophy, in its goals, in its strategy of overthrowing nation after nation in the way it's doing now, We'd see something here where I believe you've got a satanic counterfeit of the millennium appealing unto certain groups of people in the world, appealing unto certain intellectuals and so on, but working the mind of Satan in a revolt against God and in an atheistic establishment of a humanistic utopia, which will never come to pass. It is satanic and it's evil. Now don't think for a moment that I think that the worst evil in the world is, is communism. The worst evil in the world is sin. And we're told that Jesus on the cross triumphed over them, made a show of them openly that they're defeated foes, that Satan's a defeated foe, and God will trample him under feet shortly. He says his time is short. And Revelation 12 says he is very active because his time is short. He goeth about, Peter says, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But let's remember that our battle is a spiritual battle And it's only as we recognize that and we take our stand under the Lordship of Jesus Christ in accordance with his revealed word and are obedient that the Lord in turn will give us a measure of peace, a measure of tranquility, a measure of equity and justice in the nations even where we live today. And I think that we need to recognize that the time has come where we should as Christians stand and having done all to stand and then through prayer to claim that victory so that God through his people may today truly reign, truly control and direct the events which take place in the world. There's much more to be said. I see that time is gone. I have to follow those lights. But I believe that Paul says to us, he says, put on a whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in an evil day, whether it's personal, cosmic, whether it's uh, uh, eschatological day, the evil that's going to come. Stand. Then he says, wherefore, stand. And what we need today is again the same spirit that those embattled farmers demonstrated when they fired the shot that was heard around the world. We need the stamina that comes from a faith and a commitment to the things that are revealed as righteous in God's sight. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We ask this morning that as confusion and frustration and indignation and other emotions flood over the people of America, that there may be those who will rise in political and religious and social leadership who shall be able to lead us in the paths of righteousness, shall be able once again to exert the greatness and the might of this nation in a spiritual and moral way, and shall be able to turn the tide in this day for things that are right and true and good. We love thee, O Lord. We pray that in our own position, in our own place, wherever it may be, we may stand. Stand with the whole armor of God. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.
0: You've been listening to Percy Crawford, followed by Harold Ockingay. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.